Well, as Matt said this morning, we're going to begin a new series of messages here at Rio, and in which we're going to be going into the book of Isaiah and looking at some of God's songs. And maybe that struck you when he introduced that idea. I mean, I don't know that that isn't a new idea for some people where you're kind of going, oh, wow, God writes songs. And God, in fact, does write songs. God is a poet. God is an artist. God is a composer. And one of the things that he's composed is music. He's composed poetry. He's composed songs, which if you kind of step away from that for a minute and just think about what that means, that's pretty significant. Because what is a song if not a window in some sense into the soul, into the heart, into the mind of the one who has written it? In this case, not me, not you, but God. Significant. These songs are the product of the heart of God. They are the fruit of the mind of God. They are the music of the soul of God. And as a result, that carries with it some pretty practical implications for us. In other words, we need to approach them a little bit differently than we do the songs of any other artist. In other words, we don't gather here today, you know, to listen to the song of God, if you will, and then decide whether or not we like it and are going to buy it on iTunes. It's not it. You know, we're not going to come to God when the service is over and go, hey, God, we listened to your song. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of cool. It was a little catchy. It might be a little bit one of those songs that kind of plays over and over again in my head. So it could become annoying. But I think I'm going to buy it on iTunes. I'm pretty sure I like this one. Or no, you know what? I don't really like this one. Thanks for trying. Love you. But I think you ought to leave it off the album. That's not the way that it works with the songs of God. We don't play the songs of God. They play us. We don't critique the songs of God. They critique us. We don't stand in judgment on the songs of God. They come along and they judge us. They are what moves his perfect heart and stirs his perfect mind and inspires his perfect soul. They're altogether different from any other song that we're going to hear anywhere else. God's songs are different. They're different in value, too. I mean, there's no commercial value, really, to the songs of God. In other words, God does not write these songs hoping to sell you something new and different. He writes these songs hoping to make you someone new and different. These songs are not temporal. They're not temporary in the sense that God hopes to make the top 40 and his song is going to climb the chart and he's going to stand atop the chart, you know, for a month or two or three and then maybe it'll fade away and God will fade away and he'll be one of those artists that VH1 does a show on 20 years from now. Where is God today? It's not it. And he's not out to entertain us. And I want to pause because I think God gets a bad rap when it comes to entertainment. God has created us to appreciate entertainment. And he's made some of us fairly entertaining, even when we don't try to be. And God himself is the ultimate entertainer. But that's not why he's written these songs. It's not their goal. The goal is not entertainment. The goal is transformation as each one of these songs really calls us to wrestle with this question of whether or not what moves God's heart moves my heart and yours. And of whether or not what stirs God's mind stirs my mind and your mind and whether or not what inspires the music of his soul really is the music of my soul and the music of your soul. There is a sense in which each one of these songs is a window into which we can peer and see at least some glimpse of the heart, mind, and soul of God. But at the end of that, the window becomes a mirror and allows us to peer into our own hearts, into our own minds, into our own souls, and really to see and to judge whether what we see in him is what we see in us. And so what are we going to see in him? A little preview. You ready? What is it that moves the heart of God and inspires his mind and stirs music in his soul? 
It's his son. And it is the mission of his son. And I want you to hear both of those things because I think that we tend to separate the two. You know, it's like Jesus and his mission. And then we take Jesus and we put it over here and it's like we pull the mission out of Jesus' hands, right? And then we take the mission and we put it at the opposite end of the spectrum and we're all about Jesus and we're all into Jesus and we love Jesus and we're all joyful that Jesus has saved us and washed us and cleansed us and made us new and we're really jacked about the fact that heaven is found through Jesus. That's wonderful. I'm so glad for all that you've done for me, Lord. That's great. I'm putting you here. I'm taking your mission and I'm putting it over here and I look at it a little differently because it looks costly. It looks risky. It looks a little dangerous, quite frankly. It's demanding. It's challenging. I'm all about Jesus. His mission is at arm length. You see, it's not a package deal for us, but it is a package deal for God. God is going to come and He's not just going to speak it to us. He is going to sing to us about His Son, whom He describes as His servant. His servant who's on a mission. You can't disconnect the two. You don't get one without the other. See, Christ is the servant of the Lord, and He calls us to become like Christ, the servants of the Lord. And it's all in this song. It's a window, but it's a mirror as well. So the first song that we're going to be looking at is in Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. And just notice the first three words. God comes and He's singing. This is this heart of Father God. And He sings, Behold, my servant. Now stop for a second. I want you to see two things. Number one, that's not a suggestion. He's not coming along and going, I would really be excited if you would behold my servant. It'd be great for you spiritually if you would behold my servant. Hey, would you do me a favor? And it's an imperative. It's a command. He's coming to us and he's saying, hey, listen, I am telling you, behold my servant. And the little word behold is a word of sight. It means literally look at him. Look at my servant. But that begs a question, doesn't it? What are we going to look at him with? Hey, you know, God, when I look to my right, I don't see him. When I look to my left, I don't see him. When I look ahead, I don't see him. When I look behind, I don't see him. I look up, I don't see him. I look down, I don't see him. I cannot see him with the two eyes of my head, very much unlike the little G-O-D-S gods of this world, he's invisible. So what am I to look at him with? I'm to look at him with the eyes of faith. I'm to look at him with what the Bible calls the eyes of the heart. And to the eyes of the heart, he's very, very visible. In fact, you see him everywhere you look. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and then notice the word and, and your love toward all the saints. He's kind of saying the same thing that I just said, but in a different way. He's saying, listen, love for Jesus is not disconnected from life for Jesus. Love for Jesus is not disconnected from mission for Jesus. Love for Jesus is not disconnected from living out the ethic of Jesus, the mission of Jesus as demonstrated here by their love for each other. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the one who sings in Isaiah, may give you what? A spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heads enlightened. It's not what he says. 
He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, the Bible invites you to a different kind of sight, a different kind of vision, a Holy Spirit-inspired imagination by which you can behold the servant of the Lord and by which you can behold him, quite frankly, in direct opposition to all of the little G-O-D-S gods of this world that you actually can see with the two eyes of your heads. And by the way, that's exactly what the Lord would have you to do in this passage. If you know the context for this passage, Isaiah spends nine verses railing against idolatry. And then he drops in the song of the Lord. And what are the first words that God sings? He says, behold, my servant. And what again is the purpose of this song? Because it's not entertainment. It is to transform us. It's to make us different. It's to make us less like the gods of this world and a lot more and more and more so, like the servant of the Lord. See, one of the things that the Lord knows because He's created us is that as human beings, every one of us is a natural-born worshiper. We are, all of us, all the time worshiping something or someone. Inevitably, it is always true that there is a little God or a great God on the throne of our heart. In either case, there is a God on the throne of our heart at all times. And I'll tell you what else He knows. He knows that what we worship, we will become just like. And he doesn't hide that from us. He tells us that in his word as well. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 115. Beginning in verse 1, he says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then listen to what he says. It's like he's incredulous. He says, why should the nations say, where is their God? He doesn't understand it. He doesn't have a category for it. But I understand it. Oh, hey, here's a clue. Maybe because your God, unlike the little G-O-D-S gods of this world, is invisible. Their gods are little silver and gold figurines. They're on a shelf. They're in a temple. They know where they're located. They see them. They bow down to them. They worship them. So where is your God? But to the psalmist, he's everywhere. He can't look ahead or behind or left or right or up or down and not see him. That's stunning. It struck me this week that in Isaiah, the angels who sit before the throne of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then what do they say? All of heaven is full of his glory? No. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's vision. That is spiritual sight. That lays down a challenge for all of us to recognize the glory of God in each other and in everything we see, everywhere we look, everywhere we go. The psalmist is like, what do you mean, where is our God? He's not on a shelf, that's for sure. He says, why should the nation say, where is their God? He says, our God, who really exists and whom we see with the eyes of faith, is in the heavens. And unlike your God, which does nothing... He, our God, does all that He pleases, and then He completely unmasks the little G-O-D-S gods of this world. He says their gods are silver and gold. All right, I want to have an uncomfortable moment with you, okay? So are ours. They're silver and gold. And I realize, you know, that you don't bow down to a little silver or gold figurine that right now is in a shelf, you know, in your closet. Or We're a little bit more sophisticated than that, but not much. 
We worship silver and gold itself. He says, their gods, their idols, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And now listen to the description. He says, they have mouths, but they do not speak. And so, if that is your God, and you need to hear a word from your God, you know, I mean, have a seat. It's going to be a while. It's never actually going to come, ever. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see. Do you, don't you see me, God? No, I don't. Oops, wait a minute. I can't speak either, so I can't even tell you that. They have ears, but they don't hear, and you can cry out day and night forever and ever, and you get nothing. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. They won't come to your aid. They can't give you a hand. They won't help you out. They can't do for you what you really want them to do for you, and they can't give to you what you really need for them to give to you. They can't even make a sound in their throat. And then here it is, and it's the scariest part of the whole psalm. He says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Just sit in that for a moment and ask yourself, what do you trust in? What's on the throne of your heart? Louis Giglio puts it this way. He says, if you worship money, you'll become greedy at the core of your heart. If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and poison your character to death. If you worship stuff, your life will become material void of eternal significance. If you give all your praise to the little G-O-D-O God of you, You'll become a disappointing little God both to yourself and to all those who trust in you. Simply put, we become what we worship. And if you don't like who you're becoming, take a quick inventory of the things on the throne of your heart. Isaiah rails against it for nine verses, and he inserts the song of God by which he comes to us and he invites us to a different kind of vision and a different kind of worship. He calls us to behold Jesus in opposition to all the little gods of this world and to devote your life to worship to him. He calls us instead to have mouths that speak, and that speak of things that really matter in the final analysis, that speak of the beauty of the Lord, that speak of the grace of the Lord, that speak of the mercies of the Lord, that speak of the goodness of the Lord, that speaks of the justice of the Lord, that speaks of the holiness of the Lord, of the gospel of the Lord. He calls us to have eyes that see with spiritual sight that Lord, but see also all the people that are perishing spiritually and and physically all around us, to have ears that hear the voice of the Lord and that hear the cry of the people in our lives that need to know and come to hear the voice of the Lord, that have noses that learn to discern between the fragrance of life and the fragrance of death, that we might choose life and not death, hands that really feel, that really reach, that really help, and feet that go on this mission with Christ. Because you can't put Jesus in one corner and His mission in the other. It's a package deal. He's the servant. His very name carries with it the idea that He comes with a purpose. And so God starts His song with this. He says, behold, it's a command, look at my servant, and that too is instructive. It's not about entertainment, it's about transformation. 
And what will we then be transformed into? Behold my servant. Servant in your home. Servant in your school. Servant in your office. Servant in your church. Servant in your community. A servant. Okay? I wondered, you know, if somebody was to kind of do a little investigation of me, what they would find. You know, if they could sort of anonymously interview my family. Is he a servant? Yes or no? We would definitely not reveal the outcome of the study, I'll tell you that. Is it about people serving me or is it about me serving them? What about at the office? What about in the community? It's very revealing, isn't it? So God sings, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. My soul delights. You're seeing what delights the soul of the Lord. I have put my spirit upon him, okay, but to what end? For what purpose? What is the mission of this servant? And then consequently, my mission and your mission. Because again, they're not disconnected. It's a package deal. Well, here it comes. But in language that we don't quite yet understand, he says he will bring forth justice. And the word in the Hebrew is mishpat. It means the pattern. So he will bring forth the pattern to the nations. That's clear, isn't it? I have no idea what that means. What pattern is he talking about? He's talking about the pattern of heaven, the mission of Christ, and consequently of everyone who really follows Christ, who gets Jesus and his mission, is in some sense to bring heaven to earth by having mouths that really speak, by having eyes that really see, by having ears that really hear, by having noses that really smell, hands that really feel, and feet that really go. It's a mission that will not end until Christ culminates that mission upon His return, literally bringing heaven to earth. You see, it's no wonder that when the disciples of Jesus come to the Lord and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray, that He says, okay, you want to know how to pray? When you pray, say this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, and then what? Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, where? In earth, as it is in heaven. Perfect obedience. Perfect justice. Perfect existence. Behold, he says, look at my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. It's the music of my soul. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice. He will bring the pattern of heaven to the nations. And here's how he will do it. Here's what he won't do. He will not cry aloud and it means to cry aloud in distress. It tells you something 700 years before Jesus comes of what his life might be like. Distressing. He will not cry out, nevertheless, in distress, and he will not lift up his voice in complaint publicly or make it heard in the street. The servant of God will not complain about the way that he is treated in this world, and he will not be expecting to be treated any differently. He will pour out his complaints only to the Father. To everyone else, he will pour out his life. He will not cry aloud, God sings, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the streets. That's what he won't do, but listen to what he will do. 
a bruised reed, a damaged person, a broken human. He will not break. And a faintly burning wick, which might speak of faith or really even mental capacities. He will not extinguish. He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, God says a second time. It means literally he will bring it forth in truth. For that is his mission and mine and yours. And in doing so, God sings, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice where? In the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And the coastlands, which really refer to the unbelieving nations of the world, wait for his law. And that sounds beautiful. But don't you want to argue with that a little bit? I mean, is that what you see? The the nations are waiting for the law of Christ? Yeah, actually it is. I just don't think they know that's what they're waiting for. And as they wait, they try little G-O-D, God, after little G-O-D, God, after little G-O-D, God, to try to provide for themselves a salvation to try to create for themselves what only the true and the living God can bring to earth, which is heaven. You know, one of the brilliant, or one of the many brilliant things that Dostoevsky says in his book, and don't let the title throw you, called The Idiot. It's a brilliant book. It's masterful. There is teaching on every page of everything he writes. He's a believer in Christ, but one of the many things that he says, and he says it over and over again in that book, he says, beauty will save the world. He doesn't say money will save the world. He doesn't say politics will save the world. He doesn't say that capitalism will save the world. He doesn't say democracy will save the world. Technology will save the world. Science will save the world. The United States of America will save the world. He says none of those things. He says that beauty will save the world. What beauty? The beauty of the servant of the Lord of whom God here speaks, who humbly enters into the world and quietly assumes its evil and washes it away at the expense of his own life. So then having sung of his servant, God now sings to his servant. He picks it up in verse 5, and it says, Thus says the Lord, who what? Who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, and who as a result has a vested interest in all of it and in all of us. He sings this to his servant. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, for you are my gift to the peoples of the earth. He says, I will give you as a what? As a covenant for the people, a light for the otherwise dark nations to open the eyes of the blind, which is a form of darkness, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, a place of darkness, from the prison, those who sit in what? Darkness. I am the Lord, not some powerless God of silver and gold. That is my name and my glory, which is seen in my ability to do what all the gods of this world cannot do, and then infinitely more. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things... I now declare, before they spring forth, 
I tell you of them. And the music stops, and the song of God ends, and the window into his heart, mind, and soul becomes a mirror. And the question now is not, you know, whether or not you liked it. I mean, it was clearly different, wasn't it? In all likelihood, you won't hear that on the radio. Not sure you'd go searching for it on iTunes, but that's really not the issue. The question is what or whether or not what we have just seen in the Lord is what I see in me and, and what you see in you. Does what move God's heart move your heart? Does what stirs God's mind stir your mind? Does what inspires God's soul inspire your soul? And what is this? What is it? It's Jesus and His mission. It's the servant of the Lord that God here calls you to worship and by worshiping to become like. Servants who do not decry the way that they are treated in this world and don't expect to be treated any differently, but who instead pour their complaints out to the Lord alone, looking alone to Him for deliverance, and pour out their lives after the fashion of Jesus to the rest of the world, even to those who mistreat us. Servants who lift up the broken among us and who empower the weak, who proclaim with our mouths and eyes and ears and nose and hands and feet the beauty of the law of the gospel of Christ, which all the nations are waiting for, even if they don't realize it. And by which one day all all things will be made new. And servants who shine as lights in their homes, in their schools, on their ball teams, in their offices, and in their communities, servants whose lives make the Lord sing. Why? Because it reproduces the life of His servant. And what does He sing about? His servant. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this glimpse into Your heart, into Your mind, Lord, into Your soul. God, we thank You for Your servant, who is the Lord Christ. And Father, we pray for eyes of faith. God, we ask that You would open the eyes by Your Spirit of our imagination that we might, in faith, behold Your Son and recognize His great value and beauty and forsake all else in pursuit of Him. Father, give us the grace to break idolatry in our hearts and in our lives and to worship the Lord Christ that we might know Him and know the wonder of going on His mission with Him. Lord, I thank You for this time of transformation that You've set aside this morning, and I pray, God, that You will accomplish Your good purposes of transformation in each one of us today. We praise You. And as we sang, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.